hello and welcome to another episode of Flying High with Flutter. I'm your host, Alan Weima, and today we have Jonas on the podcast. Jonas, how are you? I'm Jonas. I'm a Flutter developer uh, at Medium Accenture. It's the biggest e-commerce retailer in Europe. We ran into each other like, uh, what, a couple of weeks ago, I think, at a Flutter meetup in Berlin, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, so my presentation was about uh, quality throughout the lifecycle, which is basically a quality step we do uh, when we release an app. When talking about quality in an app, it's not just about tests, right? There's so much more to it. And you can roughly distribute the testing efforts into two parts. The one part is everything you do before release, and the other part is everything you do after release. Because you want to measure on, on the one side your code quality, and on the other part, you want to measure the quality in use, so what your customers are experiencing. What do you mean by what they're experiencing? Like, like uh, if they're enjoying the app? or The experience while using the app, it should be crash-free uh, first, and <laughs> most importantly. But then also it should be an experience where they can easily do whatever they want to do in the app. So I'm working for an e-commerce retailer, so they want to purchase something. And then quality in use basically means they are able to easily find what they're searching for and then put that into the shopping cart and then are also able to check out. And that should be very easy for them to do. So that's quality. If it would be hard to do, then that's not a good quality for them. Yeah, but how you do this is actually quite interesting. We were just talking about this before the show, right? The way your app is built is that you actually first work with the mobile site, right? Within your app. Exactly. At Media Accenture, we have a huge web development team. While we are already 18 app developers, that's relatively small compared to the uh, web department. We're basically lost in the race to keep up with them. And because of that, we, if we implement a new feature, first we start by adding it as a web view to the app and making it browsable via the regular navigation. So we have a um, bottom bar, and then a good example is probably the wishlist. First, it was just the web implementation, so the web page, and the user could already use it, but it was a web view, of course. However, while that was already active, we worked on the native implementation. Uh, native means, of course, further, because <laughs> we're in the further podcast. And as soon as we had the native implementation ready, we basically switched the feature flag and then the implementation you could use in the app wasn't any longer the web view, but the native implementation. Yeah, so that's mostly the guard against issues within the Flutter code itself, right? Because with a web view, you can obviously change that on the server side and the next time that section is loaded up again, it should have a fix, right? Yes. So ideally, of course, we don't have any issues on, on the Flutter side, but in case we do have them, we can then easily switch back. Fortunately, that doesn't really happen at all. I don't really recall any instance where we had to do that. But of course, that also brings a lot of problems with it. So first of all, how do you maintain the same state across the web view and the native implementation, right? Even though we have for the wishes now the native implementation, 
other parts might not be native. So well, you switch the tab to something different and then you see a web view. And that works by using the same cookie store. So the web view obviously uses cookies. And that's how we authenticate the user um, and how we identify the user. And then we use the same cookie store across the web view and the native implementation. And every time we make a request, regardless of whether it's in the web view or the native part, it uses the cookies from the same cookie store. And if we receive new cookies from the server, we also update them, of course. And that's how we achieve yeah, the same state across web views and native parts of the application. So how do you share the two, though? I didn't quite understand how that works exactly. If you use a web view, you have complete control over that view, basically. That means you're in control of the cookie store, which is used as a backing implementation. We can also inject JavaScript, um, for example, to do rich calls between native parts and the web view. And because you're in complete control, you also know when cookies are updated in the cookie store and so on. Yeah, and this is all controlled using like the Firebase remote config, right? No, so just the feature flag is controlled by Firebase. Oh, sorry, that's, that's what I was thinking in my head is the feature flag turning off and on the native view, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What is also interesting too is that you support, is the last six or seven versions of your app? Yeah, so this is called a rolling release window. We're not necessarily supporting the last six or seven. It's, we try to support as much as possible, but let's assume we support the last six version. And then as soon as we release a new version, we basically drop the previously last supported version. And by that, we keep our yeah, window of releases small, uh, which means less maintenance work of us, for us, so, which is great because supporting every app version that's out there is virtually impossible. And by dropping support for old versions, we can get rid of old feature toggles, which are only used in old app versions. And because we know we support the last six versions. We can also tell the web colleagues, okay, we release every two weeks a new version. That means if we support that's in 12 weeks and drop support for the API. Besides just kind of making sure that, you know, how to support as many uh, apps as possible, rolling back uh, to WebView in case something bad happens uh, in that case, what other ways are you helping to kind of mitigate any kind of errors that happen in your app? Of course, we also have uh, extensive error monitoring so that we know which crashes occur, on which devices it occurs. Um, maybe it's specific to Android or iOS. And of course, we also have analytics, which also help us to figure out yeah, usability issues, right? Because not every bug is also an exception which occurs. So by using error monitoring, we basically make sure that the technical foundation is all good so that the app is usable at all. And with analytics, we make sure that the usability is of a high quality. So for example, on the wishes, on iOS, it's quite common that you swipe to the uh, swipe a list entry, and then that makes more options visible. In our case, one example was that 
for some reason, iOS users were unaware that they can swipe on, on a list entry. And then they were unable to delete stuff from the wish list. And then they basically didn't check out because they added too much to the basket. And then they weren't unable to check out, but they didn't because they added too much. And that uh, resulted in us seeing, well, there are a lot of abandoned cards. And then we investigated why is that happening? And then that led us uh, to add um, also a button to delete entries from the card. Well, it's a pretty crazy problem to have, you know, like, obviously, <laughs> if people are buying a lot of things, that's good for everybody in the company, right? But for them to not be able to complete that, that sounds like a really terrible bug. Yeah. And it wasn't an exception or anything, right? So it's nothing you can catch with error monitoring. So that's why you also want to have uh, analytics. It's not just to get as much data of the customer as possible but also to figure out whether the customer is able at all to do what he wants to do. You have like a lot of apps at scale, I think, right? So I've never heard of MediaMark before because this is, when I went to Berlin, it's the first time I was actually in kind of continental Europe, as I call it, before I've been to London a couple of times. So I've never heard of MediaMark. It was totally new to me. There's like 2,000 stores over all of Europe, if I think correctly. That's actually a good question. I have no clue how many. It's like a uh, thousand just in Germany and then like another couple hundred in different countries like Italy, Netherlands. It's like crazy. But you have something yeah. like between 11 to 13 different like white label apps or something like that? Exactly. So MediaMax Saturn is, um, yeah, it's, it's basically a huge white label app, but to, to the company group, the companies MediaMarkt, Saturn, and MediaWorld, uh, they belong to the group. And each country also has its own app. So it's not like one app for all the countries and, and also for Saturn and MediaWorld, but it's like every country has its own app. And then, of course, Saturn and MediaWorld have a slightly different branding. So we built one application where we can switch the theme for the three different sales lines, as we call it. And we intend to roll that out next year to all of the 11 countries where we're in. Right now, we have three or four missing. But overall, it's, yeah, I think 11 or 12 countries. And in total, that is like 18 million installs roughly. That sounds like quite a duty, quite a job to handle all these different apps. I remember, I think it was your, your manager, right? I think he said that you have the biggest Flutter team in all of Europe, right? It's what, around 20 people almost? I don't think it's the biggest development teams. We have 18 developers, but I think it's one of the biggest. So there's BMW, which I'm pretty sure is, is way bigger than us. One of the biggest in Europe, I think he was saying. I think so too, but I don't really know, but I'm assuming that it's like that. We have a couple of comments from the audience. Uh, I think you know this guy. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> Apparently he's surprised to hear how big MediaMarkt is. Yeah, we've, we've actually grown a lot in the last two years. So when I started, we were, I think like, eight developers but now we're like 18 so 10 more and then we also have product owners designers analysts so in total we have like 30 people responsible for the application 
That's really amazing. It's a lot of work to put into like over 10 apps that are all white labeled. I think maybe yeah. probably the, one of the biggest problems you may have is like translations, right? Because you probably have different types of German you have to handle. Yes, that's indeed a very, very rough problem. So, I mean, since it's a white label app, you can't reuse the same German translation for every country where German is available. Because, for example, we have MediaMarkt and Saturn in Germany, but because of the branding, we can't reuse the translations. There's no real support for that use case in the Flutter SDK. Uh, so we had to come up with our, our own way of dealing with that. So that means basically each country has its own translations for each language which is spoken in that country. One interesting thing to note is that we are able to do over-the-air updates for translations, which is actually kind of nice. But yeah, that's a very, very tricky problem. How do you guys handling the over-the-air updates for translations, or is that a secret? That's done by using the phrase SDK. So that's a service as a service. Um, which has support for Flutter. That makes sense, yeah. I, I worked in another company or I did some consulting work over there and they were doing story blocks. They, it's kind of similar probably where you can add input uh, all the text and all that stuff. It's not really a new thing to do kind of over there translation updates, etc. I also thought it was quite interesting too that besides, you know, all this error checking and all those other things too, you're, you're looking into one of the other talks that happened, obviously we don't have him on the show, but what you're looking into with the... Um, you know, how to deliver push notifications and what kinds of push notifications. That is really interesting thing that I think a lot of developers are always curious about because it's very difficult to figure out, right? Like, how can I message my user and trigger them to do something that I want them to do without doing it at the wrong time? I'm not that deep into that topic, but it's interesting to see also, since we are available in, in a lot of countries, we also see how those countries uh, respond differently to push notifications. And it ranges from like in one country, they send out like two push notifications a week to other countries where we, they send out like 10 push notifications a day. I guess that's no too high number, but it was really surprising to see the difference in uh, how many push notifications are delivered to users in various countries. It's for sure a very interesting problem to have. It, the question is always like, when is a good time? And if we can somehow detect that, I mean, obviously time of day is easy, but there's so many factors or, um, you know, them walking by a media market and knowing that that shop has something that they want and it's on sale or promotion. That would be really nice yeah. to have. But Yeah, especially since we want to basically bridge the online and offline world a bit more with the application. It's very hard to do with the web page. There's not a really good way to combine that somehow, but with the app, we're able to do that. So being able to send out a push notification when we know the customer's near store is a really good way to also get them in the store. And then as soon as they enter the store, we are able to basically bridge between the online and offline world. So we're working on a image scanner for the app with which you can scan the products in the store. So that means you can go to a product, browse a little bit the various products we have. And then if you see something which you're interested in, you can scan the R code or the product label or whatever. And then you're able to add it to your wishes in the app if you're not ready yet to buy it right away. So that's a very interesting use case, for example. 
Well, I mean, being able to also scan an item that is near you. I think Google or something has something where you can scan an item and then they can find it for you through online shopping. Maybe it's Amazon or I think it's more Amazon or Google have something like this. Yeah, I think Amazon has something like that. But for us, the use case is different because we only want to be able to scan products which we have in the store. Yeah. Obviously, you have to check it against your database and then you know if you have it, right? Yeah. Are barcodes like across all stores the same? Because it's like printed on the box, no? I'm not too sure right now, but also barcodes are planned for the version two, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, we do it based on OCR, so optical character recognition. That's because for most of our products, we have labels. They are either printed on paper or we have uh, some electronic shelf labels, which also have product IDs. And then we recognize that there's a number and then we, based on the number, we can basically do a lookup. Uh, and then we can present the user the product he scanned in the app. Doing OCR, that means you actually have to work with the native code, right? Because what, it doesn't have anything built into it. Yes, but actually there are quite a lot of uh, packages on Pub which allow you to do that, which are already pre-bundling machine models which do OCR and so on. I believe Camera Awesome and Camera X uh, are two pretty popular uh, packages to do that. They both basically have written all the code for you. And then you can just listen to streams of things that are recognized in the camera stream. Coming back to the main topic of error handling, right? You do actually have some self-made plugins, but I'm guessing with probably some native code, right? So we're using Sentry at MediaMax Saturn, and Sentry is also well using native code. So what Sentry did is it wrote a Dart and Flutter wrapper around the iOS and Android SDKs. And that enables us to catch all errors, regardless where they come from, whether it's from the native side or the Flutter side. And that's working actually really well. What we did add was support for various better exception messages for our own exceptions. So you can uh, write code that you get more details about your application, but it's not much we did on top of it. Yeah, you have like metadata section for century errors, right? Yeah, exactly. If we need to create our own metadata to catch errors, to figure out what's going on, is there specific data that you think that we should have so that way we can report the right things and take the right actions? Um, so I think the most basic ones that are very interesting is operating system, of course. So whether it's Android or iOS, and then ideally also more detailed information about the devices. Then it's very interesting to know the Flutter version. Unfortunately, uh, that's impossible because it's not exposed. So the next best thing is the Dart version, which is possible to report. And from that, you can kind of guess which Flutter version that crash is coming from. Then it's also interesting to know whether the error comes from the native side or the Flutter and Dart side. But for a lot of other exceptions, it's probably irrelevant because you're, I don't know, for web exceptions, you're, for example, interested in to see how we right now connected to the internet or not. So if an HTTP error happens, 
you know, well, this is not because our backend is unreachable, but because the user doesn't have any internet connection right now. Now, the other question is, because I'm actually in Hong Kong, which is nearby China, that, well, maybe you're connected to the internet, but maybe you're not allowed to go to that, that place, right? That could be another thing. But even like corporate firewalls, things like that, those could also be issues too, right? The, the VPN isn't that important to us because we're all uh, just in Europe, but the corporate setting might be interesting. But I haven't really looked into that yet because I, I'm not aware that we have a lot of issues there. Yeah, well, I guess it depends on if they're even using the Wi-Fi of the company and if that one is set up to filter out because I know a lot of corporates say like to filter out certain websites because people spend too much time like social media shopping is another <laughs> one, you know. Uh, when I yeah. work, a lot of the ladies in the office, they there was always one lady in this work that I always had. She would spend all morning figuring out what to eat for lunch. And then after lunch, she figure out what to eat for dinner. And then about one hour before she's supposed to stop working, then she realizes she didn't do any work. And then she would have to uh, work overtime. So that was kind of like her daily life, honestly, was that like every day. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if we need to start to block some of the um, food looking websites. No. <laughs> That's oh. also a very interesting issue to have. Yeah, I mean, I guess if companies start to block your services, then maybe that's a good thing in terms of that issue where people are spending too much time there. Yeah, for sure. What I did before for when I did some error tracking, we were using Sentry, but we also had like this live logging app, uh, live logging uh, service, I mean, just so we can have information like they got this far, they got this far, this is the current data at this point, and then finally it crapped out. You know, we can kind of link up everything. I think having like a user ID so that way we could see, you know, who was this user? Because sometimes you get errors, you know, like, what is that? What were they doing? And then you start, you know, you want to kind of follow up with them. You also kind of look at this stuff too and follow up with specific users to see what happened at specific times. Sentry has for each crash report, they send, they also have a log. They call it uh, breadcrumbs, uh, which is basically a recording of uh, steps the user did. So it includes navigational events, HTTP requests, network changes, all kinds of interesting stuff, which ideally you can then manually follow with a debug version, which then also should result in a crash. So that's for crashes, for example, but on the analytics side, you of course also can do that. Yeah, we also have a question from the audience, if you can read that. So he says, uh, do you also keep track of connection issues or are these issues you exclude from tracking? Also, what are your thoughts about a include only these or versus exclude these approach of tracking? We actually do keep track of those, but personally, I would just exclude those. I mean, they're not really actionable. So, I mean, if the user has no connection, what can I do about that? I could write code for the application to try to connect to Wi-Fi, but then I would have to well, request connection permissions. I, I think there are some permissions which I need to request for that. And since that's quite sensitive, I wouldn't think that a lot of users would grant that permission. And even if they would grant it, there's not necessarily a Wi-Fi connection or mobile connection or whatever available. So realistically, there's not a lot of things you can do if the user doesn't have connection. So I, I would just exclude those. There must be some errors that happen that you're very well aware of. 
and maybe there's nothing you can do. Like you said, that, you know, they don't have internet, so therefore it's common for them to have a cannot reach host. There's always two parts to that, right? You have the application and you have the backend. So when your backend is unreachable, ideally you're also able to detect that on the backend, right? Because you see either that there's no traffic anymore on the backend or on a different way. So that's why you not necessarily need to track everything on the application side, because you should also do error monitoring on the backend. Well, this is true too, right? Like if you get an error on the client side about a server side error, then obviously the server side error will give you more information. You know, exactly. But I mean, still, there must be some app only issues that you may run into besides network connections that you're just like, okay, we know about this. And actually, I think Sentry has something where you can say like, ignore this. Like if you know a specific error, right? Yeah, so you can ignore them, but still receive them, which means you can do uh, dashboards and stuff with them, but not actively see them in the issue stream. But you can also add inbound filters, which means those specific errors are filtered right during the ingestion stage. And then you don't have them at all in the database of Sentry. When an error pops up, right? How do you figure out when you want to take action on that error? What are your, your steps for this kind of stuff? What do you kind of recommend? In the ideal world, you want to follow up on every exception, on every error, right? Because you want to have the best possible quality. But realistically, that's also not possible if you, if you have millions of customers. At some point, it just becomes financially not valuable to do so. So what you want to measure is basically exceptions per session, because the less exceptions per session a user has, the better, which means that it's basically also always worth it to work on a lot or most exceptions. But you prioritize which exceptions to work on based on the amount of users they affect. That's the way to prioritize and work on them. Now, is that made from physically taking a look to see how many times this bug has come up? Who would be affected? Or is it just like, well, not many people go to the section, but everybody can visit that section. So therefore, we should fix this sooner rather than later. I guess it kind of goes hand in hand. So an exception only affects a lot of users if a lot of users are using that section of the application, right? But on the other hand, I mean, if there's an error or exception handling on the imprint or on the legal page or something, I mean, I don't really care about that so much. I mean, it's still annoying and so on, and it should get fixed, but... On the legal page, right? Legally, I guess people need to take a look at that part, but do people actually really take a look at it? I don't know. That's an, actually, that's a really tricky question because no. legally it's supposed to work, right? If I, if I think correctly. Yeah, I guess so. The whole metadata thing came to my mind again right now, because there's a lot of information that you want to have, but you're in Europe, we always hear about this GDPR, right? Now, is there some things that you cannot collect or people, you know what I mean? Like related to errors that could be an issue with GDPR? Yeah, so of course, personal identifiable data. So addresses, names, birthdays, I guess, probably credit card numbers. So everything based on which you can identify a specific person, that's something you don't want to record to your error monitoring service, except if the user agrees to it, of course. 
because if the user agrees to it, then he has consented that it's acceptable for him. But if he doesn't, then you shouldn't record such information. So you'd have to ask permission for that. Yes, exactly. Okay. But it's like storing like a database user ID, I mean, that shouldn't be, does that count as something that's personally identifiable? Because you'd have to use that to cross-reference to get the actual data. Uh, I'm also not too sure. Uh -oh. Yeah, so we make sure that we only record what we're allowed to, but I don't know offhand uh, what exactly is it out and so on. So I would have to look that up. Fair enough. Um, I mean, for me, I try to get the database ID because things change, whatever else, but that definitely makes a lot of sense. I think that you guys definitely have a, a really great way of working. And I just love that idea of having something that works, getting the native part, and then still having a fail safe where we can flip back in case something bad happens. And obviously the new one, and then it's just such a great idea that, you know, I wish more people would do something like that. Although I do despise apps that have the web view sometimes because it's quite ugly, right? You can tell it's like a sudden change usually. Yeah, that's true. I think in Germany, it's actually somewhat common. I've also came across that uh, before MediaMarkt Saturn, actually. For example, a company called Check24, uh, that's um, like a portal where you can compare prices and stuff for various stuff. And the application also works like that. So they have a web view and then native parts. And as far as I know, they can also switch between those two. That was like three or four years ago uh, when I came across that. I also don't know whether that's still like that for that, but they did it at least in the past. I don't think I have any other questions. I think you definitely covered all the important points and uh, you gave everybody at home who's listening, you know, ideas about what they can do to make sure they get enough data and, and uh, an awesome way to uh, have a fallback in case there's something bad happens, right? I just wanted to thank you for, for coming on and, and talking more about that. And I uh, really appreciate that. Yeah, it was a pleasure being here. Yeah, hopefully I'll have you back again in the future.